When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Slate's Lily Loofborough has been watching a lot of videos of Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez recently. She's been trying to figure out why conservatives are having such a hard time making Ocasio-Cortez into their enemy. Because I think at one point I thought, you know, she just seems to have so much charisma that they're not attacking her in the way that they might other people. And then as I was looking into it, it's like, no, they are. That's not the problem. (laughs) That's That's not exactly what's going on. But for some reason, it's not working. And it's, it's not working the way we're used to seeing that work. Lily's used to seeing it work like this. A female candidate gets popular and at the same time becomes something of a caricature. A pretty candidate becomes dumb. A forceful candidate becomes shrill. Both sides do this. But with the congresswoman from the Bronx, it's really the right wing media that's putting the work in. Well, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez hitting the campaign trail with Bernie Sanders this week. But is she all sizzle? And no stake. Here's what she said when questioned on Israeli-Palestinian relations. It's not like Ocasio-Cortez isn't doing things wrong. Check out this tape from back in July on Fox News. You use the term the occupation of Palestine. Mm. What did you mean by that? Oh, um, I think what I meant is like the the settlements that are increasing in in some of these areas and and places where... um, where Palestinians are experiencing uh, difficulty in access to uh, their housing and homes. This tape is painful to listen to. But Lily says even when Ocasio-Cortez's critics pounce, they end up revealing more about themselves than about her. I am not the expert on geopolitics on this issue. That's for sure. (laughs) Joining me now, Fox News contributor Tommy Lair. Now, Tommy, you and I have been in situations where I'm sure we don't really know exactly what we're talking about, but we're able to fudge it. And I think it's actually telling of how far we've gone down the lying is mandatory in politics rabbit hole. (laughs) You never throw your hands up and you say, I'm not an expert. It's not wrong to say I don't know. (laughs) That's correct, right? Like that is actually telling the truth. (laughs) That is saying, I need to read up on this and figure out what my position is. And that is unsayable in American politics. You're not allowed to, you have to bluster and lie and assert and like, and, and, and it doesn't, that is preferable, <laughs> right? Apparently. On today's show, I'm going to talk to Lily about how Ocasio-Cortez seems to be shifting the way we talk politics. As arguably the most prominent member of Congress's freshman class, a class that's more racially diverse and more female than ever before, can she help flip the script for women in Washington? Stay with us. This episode is brought to you by Discover. When it comes to your finances, Discover wants you to know they are the credit card that is always there for you. With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. 
Yep, that means no more waiting for, quote, normal business hours just to get a hold of someone. We are talking real service from real people whenever you need it. Get the customer service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Before she was a writer at Slate, Lily did something else entirely. She was an interpreter, helped injured people get workers' comp. She says, weirdly, watching Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez speak, it reminds her of those days. You were constantly having to translate between totally different frameworks, right? Because there is a patient population for whom, like, what is your pain from zero to ten doesn't make sense. It doesn't tell the story of their accident or their pain. And it's insisting on flattening their narrative into a story that will result in some percentage of disability, but also cuts out a lot of what is important to them about what occurred. And I think that Ocasio-Cortez is in some sense kind of an interpreter for this moment in America, where a lot of people are so strangled and struggling by economic difficulty. And and, and there seems to be no language in our political system to acknowledge that or to even register the concern to those who are in a position to change it. So it feels like she's actually in this position of interpreting between the real needs the public has and a political system that really structurally refuses to see or acknowledge them or recognize them as relevant. She says the fact that Ocasio-Cortez is successful like this, it's an especially big deal because of her gender. I think for those of us who've been watching female candidates try to launch political careers for a while, there has been a kind of dismay because you see certain buttons being pushed and then you see them work instantly. There's kind of this ripple effect across the whole internet that's like, oh, yes, indeed, she is unlikable. Or, oh, yes, oh, the pantsuit. Ugh. I don't know if it's exactly disgust, but certainly dismissal. And it just is not happening with her. I'm not seeing that easy domino effect that I've seen work on a lot of candidates, principally Hillary Clinton, but, you know, other people, too. I would like to talk about that a little bit. Like you talk about Hillary, and that was, of course, the first person I thought of, too. But are there other candidates that sort of come to your mind where it's like they started off strong and then these bit by bit assaults were able to just take them down? When you look at Amy Klobuchar, for example, um, it's immediately evident the way that she can be um, attacked, you know, because we're used to having moms and scolds be figures of disrespect. And Elizabeth Warren, right, the recent conversation about her being unlikable, (laughs) as if that's a bad thing. I mean, my gosh, watching her stand up to the banks and to, you know, bankers in those hearings is one of the most inspiring things we've ever seen. I don't want a candidate to be worrying about likability when they're doing that. And it's not something that we demand, I think, of male politicians. But You know, the fact of the matter is we just have this kind of secret programming running within us that makes it extremely easy to relegate any female confrontational tactic as either shrill or scolding or irritatingly maternal or naggish. You know, that we have so many verbs to describe the annoying valences of female aggression. (laughs) And that makes it very easy for us to dismiss them. You know, the thing I remember is I heard an interview with Jennifer Granholm. And she talked about when she was first getting into politics, like the first thing she had to do was cut her hair. Wow. Really? Yeah. It was like a rule. It was like, can't have that long hair. It's not going to work. Why? Because it was too, it would ring too many lady bells, I think. Like people would see her and say, oh, she's a woman. (laughs) It's like, well, yes, obviously. 
Yeah, no, I mean, isn't that so true? Like, I think androgyny had to be the standard that female candidates were forced to aspire to. And one of the problems I think that Hillary Clinton faced is that that doesn't ring true to people because you're not quite being yourself, right? You're speaking in a lower voice than is your natural voice so as not to sound shrill. You're modulating your emotion and your affect to seem maximally stable and rational lest you be branded, you know, a hysterical harpy. But I think the strange net effect of all that is that you start to seem manipulative and deceptive <laughs> because you're not 100% corresponding with yourself as you exist as a human being. But there was no template for that, really, I don't think. Part of what you say about Ocasio-Cortez is that this sort of authentic presentation is leading us to have different conversations with her, whereas in previous in previous Congresses, we weren't talking about policy. We were talking about these issues of how someone looks and whether they're likable, but now we're talking about actual real issues. Can you talk a little bit about how that works? I honestly don't quite know how it works. It's amazing to me that it works, but it seems to be working. I mean, she seems to be so accustomed to being, you know, a relatively attractive person that it doesn't get in her way, that, that that's not something that she's thinking about, that she's swiftly moving through that to talk about the issues. And I think there may be something to that, whether it's her experience as a bartender, where you have to deal constantly with people who are kind of, you know, confronting you and forcing you to reckon with that part of yourself or whatever. It seems to me that because she is able to sail through her own self-presentation and get onto the serious stuff that she models a way for other people to do the same. That said, I mean, it's not like they're not talking about her looks. I mean, obviously people are. Um, but somehow she's been able to convert that attention into serious economic policy discussion. <laughs> which is quite a trick, you know? Yeah, I mean, like a great example is the 60 Minutes interview where all of a sudden for like a solid news cycle and a half, we were all talking about marginal tax rates. It was incredible. You know, you look at our tax rates back in the 60s and when you have a progressive It was just incredible. System, I mean, I, you know, yeah, I looked up those Google trends and you just watch her popularity spike and marginal tax rate spike. Well, once you get to the and that's amazing. Times, <laughs> climb up this ladder, you should be contributing more. She's setting the conversation in a way that I don't think anyone but Trump has been able to. Yeah, let's talk about that. You have this really interesting argument about how, in some ways, Ocasio-Cortez is like a mirror image of Trump. Explain that a little bit. Well, in a funny way, I think that it is in part because she's not talking about him, <laughs> that she's managing to kind of cut him out of the centering of himself that he's usually so successful at. Like, I feel like she saw this national conversation that had become so petty and insular and Trump-centric, you know, with the Mueller investigation provoking this constant kind of substance-free debate instead of addressing our urgent unsolved problems, of which we have many, we're kind of squabbling about what the hypothetical findings in this report would hypothetically mean. And she just seems to like, she seems to have rerouted that river. I, like I keep thinking of like Hercules mucking out the Aegean stables or something while doing a triple Lutz. You know, she's getting people talking about economics. And I think it's partly because she has whatever combination of factors produce political stardom. And Trump has that too. And it baffles me. I don't understand why he does. There are so many reasons why he should not 
appeal to the people he appeals to, but he does and is undeniable. And I think that's one of the interesting things about stardom is that you can't reduce it to charisma or to appearance or to backstory. One of the arguments you make, which I think is really interesting, is that having these bright, shiny stars allows people to express these ideas that they'd kept hidden and thought of as almost shameful, whether that's in Trump's case, racism, or in Ocasio-Cortez's case, these sort of socialist views and this sort of talk back about, no, it really is hard to make it in America. Yeah, I mean, and there's just no better proof of how hard it is to make it in America than the fact that the Republican Party, which bases its entire philosophy on the American dream doesn't seem to believe that she achieved it. They just keep trying to find ways to undermine her story, which is just a classic bootstrapping meritocratic story. (laughs) And the fact that they cannot believe that it happened and are trying to like scrape up some dirt that would explain her testifies to the extent to which they don't actually believe that that is true. They don't think they really believe that the American dream, the bootstrappy idea of like rags to riches, not riches, but success is possible in this country. Yeah, I mean, you've had them saying like, oh, she went to private schools and her clothes look expensive. And isn't it crazy that she can't find an apartment? That doesn't make any sense. They need her to be a Bronx elitist or a hoaxer or what, you know, whatever. She cannot be authentic. Uh, Another thing with Trump that I think is worth thinking about is that he is hard to debunk in the way that she is, right? Because there is not exactly a 100% rational basis for the fandom necessarily. So I think, you know, people who have been trying to dissuade Trump supporters think it can be done by disputing the facts or pointing out that he was crooked, right? Or that, you know, his lawyer was a fixer and was engaged in all kinds of shady activities in hopes that those revelations will change people's minds. But the fact of the matter is that's not why they like him anyway, And I think there may be some strange analog in the efforts to debunk Ocasio-Cortez. I mean, I think she's not... People are happy that she grew up in a little middle-class home. You know, like, that revelation is not going to make people turn on her. (laughs) The, The way that the attempted debunkings are going to happen reveals a lot about what the other side thinks the basis of support is. Um, And so I think we're learning a lot, too, about what each political star's community actually secretly values about their candidate. I want to have one more conversation with you, which is about anger. Just a couple of months ago, we were having these really deep conversations about women's anger. There were a lot of really interesting women talking about how women's anger was going to kind of save us and how important it was in terms of motivating political change. And I wonder if Ocasio-Cortez changes that thinking because she, I don't see her ever as angry. There's like almost every picture of her, she's got the biggest smile. And that doesn't mean she's not pushing back. But it's one of the most interesting things I, I think about her. That's true. That's interesting. Yeah. uh, Well, I mean, I think that, that, you know, I think that one reason that her opponents have a hard time attacking her is that she's just so likable. You know, (laughs) she's so vivacious and, you know, you're right. She's, she's smiling and 
and and I think that's the reason that a lot of digital magazines that are trying to paint her as a lunatic like have these stills where she looks you know kind of bug-eyed and <laughs> her mouth is open because they're trying very hard to present that version of her this is this is what women's anger hath wrought this woman you know um but the trouble is that anybody who watches her instantly realizes the falseness of that presentation and i think that's one of the interesting slippages that she's made possible you know there there she's really good at getting people to attack her on 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 grounds that reveal their own inadequate descriptions of the present whether it's about like latinos or scary socialists or taxes or the left the reality is just so clearly different to anybody who actually watches her and i think part of her personal appeal is a that people want to actually watch her because she's a very attractive personality and you know b honestly that her instagram is ephemeral that some of her videos go away so I think she actually um, gives people a reason to tune in because her record isn't, it's only semi-permanent. <laughs> and that's interesting. That's an interesting strategy for, for getting eyeballs on you in a sustained way. I think that what worried me about those conversations about women's anger, which were crucial and, and important and, and we needed to have, was was that a lot of women were feeling so trapped and furious and... And I think the midterms helped to alleviate some of that pressure because women took some power back and they have legitimate power in government now. Um, and the fact that she is the face of a significant aspect of that is, I think, useful because you're totally right. She, she constantly diffuses the narrative about angry women hell-bent on revenge. That's not her presentation and that's not the story that she's telling to Americans at all. Lily, thank you for talking to me a little bit about your work. Thanks for having me. One last rabbit hole to jump down before we go. Matthew Whitaker, the acting attorney general. Today we learned even he is being pinched by this government shutdown. And we know this because his wife Marcy sent Slate's Mark Joseph Stern an email and she implied she's the only one getting paid right now. Marcy wrote to Mark to complain about his characterizations of her husband. Mark called Matthew Whitaker an existential threat to democracy and one of the least qualified people to serve as attorney general. Frankly, when I first read the email and uh, showed it to my editors and they said we should push to publish it, I, I felt a little bad for Marcy because she seems like not a terrible person. This woman is just writing to defend the man she loves. But in doing so, she also happens to uh, possibly reveal insights into the Mueller investigation uh, and defend uh, her husband's decision not to recuse from overseeing that investigation uh, and various other newsworthy items. What was the most newsworthy thing that she said? Well, I think the most newsworthy thing is is about Mueller. And she says at one point, you know, by all accounts, the Mueller investigation is wrapping up. Uh, that is a very interesting statement from the wife of the acting attorney general who is overseeing the investigation. It suggests that perhaps 
one of those accounts is Matthew Whitaker's, which he could be delivering to her. Uh, she then goes on to justify uh, her husband's decision not to recuse um, and, and does so in a way that I do not find at all persuasive, but suggests she is very aware of this debate, aware that Justice Department ethics officials counseled him to recuse, and then he decided not to. Um, and so it was very political. You say you felt this little pang of guilt. Did you send her a warning email back, like, uh, by the way, I'm going to publish this? Yes, of course. Uh, and I actually called her twice, um, and I got her voicemail, which she herself recorded. Uh, and she responded shortly after uh, press time, actually, uh, unfortunately, so it could not go in the piece. But she said something that was <laughs> almost sort of nice. She said, well, I'm sure you'll be as positive and accurate as you can, which just made me feel a little more bad. But I am still very certain that we made the right decision. And I think this is a really important and newsworthy article. You can read Marcy's whole email at Slate.com. More shutdown news for you. The State Department seems to have found some money, somewhere, to pay for a few thousand employees to return to the job. They can't guarantee how long the money's going to last. But thousands of other workers are still not getting paid. And the only work getting done on Capitol Hill or in the White House seems to be letter writing. First Nancy Pelosi suggesting President Trump postpone the State of the Union. Now Trump suggesting Pelosi postpone a trip abroad. TLDR, I think we're all feeling a little bit like Cardi B. But this shit is really fucking serious, bro. This shit is crazy. Like, our, our country is in a hellhole right now. All for a fucking wall. Like, we really need to take this serious. We, I feel like we need to take some action. I don't know what type of action, bitch, because this is not what I do. But, bitch, I'm scared. This is crazy. All right, that's the show. What Next is hosted by me, Mary Harris, and produced by Mary Wilson and Jason DeLeon. We had loads of help this week from Daniel Hewitt. Hey, you, person who stayed through the credits. Yeah, we know that you like us. Just admit it already. So go leave a rating or a review on Apple Podcasts. It'll help other people find us. And it'll be a public proclamation of your love, your true feelings. It's going to feel good. We promise. Have a great holiday weekend. You can't define the fairy dust of a star. (laughs) Like, it's not something you can pin down. But goddammit, we're going to (laughs) try. We are going to try.